0: So let me just say today, uh, welcome back to our fourth and uh, final sermon in this Old Testament book, the book of Ruth. Um, In each of our previous three sermons, we've covered one chapter of the book of Ruth. And today, you know, we are, we're going to kind of finish it out on chapter four. So if you're new with us today, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. But I do want to start by giving you a little bit of the backstory, a summary of the first three chapters that leads us up to chapter four. So in chapter 1, here's what's happened. We are introduced to a woman who is named Ruth. She is from a land called Moab. She ended up marrying into an Israelite family who moved out of Israel and uh, the region of Bethlehem due to a famine. They moved into Moab, and the sons in that family married Moabite women, one of which was Ruth. Here's the thing. While they were living in Moab, uh, all the men in that family died, right? So We saw that the father died. His name was Elimelech. The two sons, Malon and Kilion, died. Um, Malon left behind his wife, Ruth, and the other other sister-in-law was, uh, daughter-in-law was left behind, and Naomi was left behind without her husband, Elimelech. And so, you know, the two of them um, kind of remained together, Ruth and Naomi, and they decided, hey, we want to leave Moab and we want to return to Naomi's homeland uh, in Israel. When they came back into Bethlehem in Israel, um, what ended up happening was people saw Naomi, they recognized her, and they said, Naomi's back. And she says to them, No longer call me Naomi. And that name means pleasant. Uh, she says, Instead, call me Mara. And that name means bitter. Because in her eyes, um, really she thought that the Lord was kind of dealing bitterly with her. She had started to become bitter towards the Lord. And so we, in week one, addressed this reality that sometimes the people of God can really struggle with bitterness towards God. Some of you may find yourself in a similar situation today. Um, where you come in, and you know, bitterness is something that, towards God, is something that you're wrestling with. You're one of God's people. You've seen his faithfulness to you in the past, but something's happened, and you're bitter towards him, and the, the big takeaway from week one was, lit, was this. When we are tempted to be bitter at God, let's remember that he's always doing something better than we can imagine, and in Naomi's case, she was down. She was struggling, But God was doing something better than she could imagine because she was bringing Naomi to Ruth. Ruth would marry a man named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth would be great-grandparents of Israel's great King David. And he would eventually be the ancestor of our King Jesus, right? So when you're tempted to kind of be bitter at God, remember, he's always doing something better than you can imagine, even if you can't see it in your life. That was chapter one. Chapter two um, the story of Ruth and Naomi continues. Uh, they are poor at this point. They are, they're back in the hometown of, of Bethlehem, but they're poor. They don't have husbands to provide for them. Ruth decides to go out and glean in the fields in order to have provision. Well, the field that she gleans in just so happens to be owned by a man named Boaz. Boaz just so happened to be the son of a non-Israelite woman who ended up coming into the Jewish community and being accepted there. Um, And so Boaz just so happens to be the type of man who has uh, appreciation in his heart for um, the Jewish people welcoming in Moabite people like Ruth, right? So he just so happens to see her and just so happens to set his eye on her and set his heart on her and desire to marry her. And as we're going to see in the rest of the story, it's just going to so happen that God is going to take care of everything for Ruth. And so in week two, we really addressed our need to trust in the providence of God. His providence is that that kind of that theological term that means that God works through natural means to accomplish his supernatural plans. It's, you know, it's like this, you know, what seems to be our happenstance is really God's providence. And in Ruth's case, it was God's providence that brought her to an Israelite family who brought her to Bethlehem, who brought her to Boaz, who brought her to having children, who had children, who had children, until one of them just so happened by the providence of God to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what seems like your happenstance is really God's providence. That was chapter 2. Then last week we got into chapter 3. In chapter 3, we kind of focused on the idea of rest. We saw that Naomi really wanted uh, Ruth to have the rest of marriage. She wanted that security, that partnership, that protection and provision that came in that culture with having a husband. And so she starts to play matchmaker. Remember, she wants to help Ruth get hooked up with, um, with Boaz. And so she gives her some tips. Remember, she told uh, Ruth, you got to look good. You got to smell good. Take a shower, put on some perfume, go meet the guy. So that's what she did. And, you know, basically Ruth went and um, was forthright with Boaz. And she just basically said, like, if you will redeem me, I will marry you. Right? And she kind of put that out there for him. And uh, Boaz says, yes, I absolutely want to redeem you. and But the problem is, is that when it came to family redeemers, there was kind of a family order and a family chain that had to be followed. And Boaz wasn't the first in line to be the family redeemer. So Boaz says, we got to go through the proper channels. We got to go through the right procedures. But he le- we left off basically with Boaz committing and telling Ruth, like, I, I'm going to settle this matter quickly because I want to marry you. And you can imagine Ruth kind of wondering how it's all going to shake out. And at the end of chapter 3, Naomi came to Ruth and said, don't worry about it. Like, you, can, you can rest easy because Boaz is going to be restless until he settles this matter today, right? So last week, the emphasis was on rest. We talked about principles for those of you who are really desiring the rest that comes with marriage those of you who aren't married right now, but you hope to be someday. And we talked about the importance of even in our desire for the rest of marriage, that we find the rest for our souls ultimately in God. And that's where our souls can truly rest. And so the big idea last week was this. It was that when we find ourselves restless for relationships, our souls will find true rest in a relationship with God. And in Ruth's case, Naomi wanted her daughter to find this place of rest in marriage. Boaz was restless to marry her himself. But they both came to this point, Ruth and Boaz, where they had made their intentions known. They had made their desires known. But then there were kind of some things that were out of their control. And so what did they have to do? They had to rest and leave it in the hands of God. They had to trust him and find their rest in him. So when we find ourselves restless for relationships, we find true rest in a relationship with our sovereign God. Now, that's a summary of chapters one through three. Today, we're going to wrap up in chapter four. I want to teach verse by verse through this whole chapter. Like always, I want to make several teaching points along the way. And let me just give you a heads up. Like, there are some technicalities and some interesting parts of this text That, you know, really they require me to spend a little extra time kind of teaching and explaining what's going on here. So hang with me as we go. uh, And I'll teach through the verses of this chapter. We're going to see how it all ties into Jesus, who is obviously the hero of all of Scripture. And I want to end today with a time of personal reflection for you. A time where you can reflect and consider what God has been saying to you through this study of, of Ruth. I want to give you a time of response and decision at the end. And I hope that you'll leave here feeling like God's really been at work in your heart uh, through this study of this Old Testament book. I hope your heart is moved to love Jesus, our Redeemer, more and more as we finish up our study on the book of Ruth today. So all that being said, let's get into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So right away, we have Boaz doing exactly what he told Ruth he was going to do. He's going to go and try to settle the matter today, right? He's going to try to get the, the, the business side of all of this marriage and desire to be with her as a redeemer. Uh, he's going to try to get it settled. In other words, Boaz was not this indecisive, kind of twiddle his thumbs, wonder what's going to go on. He's not wasting time. He's not overanalyzing. He's got his heart set on the girl, so he's taking a step, right? He's going to do it. And so he's taking initiative to pursue her. And in doing so, he goes up to the city gates. Now, The city gates were a very important part of the city. When you imagine the city gates, don't just imagine like the gate to your fence that leads to your backyard or something like that. That's, we're not talking about like a, we're not mainly talking about just a physical gate like that. We're talking about an area. When you entered through the gates, there was an area there. Uh, where people would sit and hang out, and they would discuss the matters of the day, and you know, do all sorts of things. It reminds me of like when I was growing up. You know, I would always, you know, every once in a while go to McDonald's early in the morning with my dad, and you know who's there? Like all the 5 a.m. old guys who are sitting around trying to handle the affairs of the world, right? And all the old guys at McDonald's. That's kind of what I think about when I think about the City Gates. There's old wise guys named elders who are there and they are handling like city business. They are making decisions. They're here. Like if a a messenger came from another city and had some news to report, it would happen at the city gates. Official like um, court hearings type things, judicial matters would be settled at the gate. So this was an important place and Boaz goes to the gate where the elders would have normally met. Now, while he's there, it says, behold, you know, the Redeemer came. So again, he just so happened to show up at the right time, right? As we've discussed in previous weeks, right, the Redeemer was a male family member who was entitled by Jewish law to act on behalf of another family member from their clan who was in need. You can read all the details of that in Leviticus 25. I'm not going to do it here today, but you can read it on your own. Leviticus chapter 25. So in this case, the family member in need was Naomi. She was a widow. She had no sons. She had property to care for. Plus, she had her widowed, childless daughter-in-law alongside her, Ruth, right? And Ruth also needed to be cared for. So under Jewish law, you know, what was supposed to happen was this procedure called leveret marriage, where the man comes and he has a baby with the widowed, childless daughter-in-law, and uh, that baby would become essentially an heir to the family inheritance, right? So we talked about this over the past few weeks. Um, it's called leveret marriage. Now, just so you know, I'm not just making this up, and this actually comes from the Bible somewhere. Uh, I, want you to, I just want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Again, Deuteronomy, part of the Old Testament scriptures that would have guided the life of the Jews in this era during the book of Ruth. Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 25, verse uh, five through six. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. The husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his uh, dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Right? So that's the law of leveret marriage. If a man died, his brother was supposed to come in, marry his living spouse, and you know have a child with her. If you read Numbers and other passages of Scripture, you can see that if the man had no brother, then that responsibility might fall to an uncle. And if there's no uncle who's willing, then it may fall to the cousins and so on and so forth down the family line. Now, we've talked about that a lot over the past three weeks. And we've kind of always talked about it assuming that the family member who's supposed to step in and kind of perform the obligations of levirate marriage, we just assumed they would do it, right? But what happens if they don't? That's the question. What happens if this man who's supposed to step in didn't want to? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 25 that we just read uh, speaks to that as well. So let's just keep reading in Deuteronomy. It says this in Deuteronomy 25 verse 7. It says, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and shall pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Somebody said amen to that. That was funny. All right. (laughs) And she, shall, and she shall answer and say this, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Right? So you guys are, la- I read this and I'm like, this is funny. Like, I mean, I think uh, you just, it doesn't go your way, spit in his face, take his shoe. Like, all right, you know, I think we kind of get it when, um, when the spit in the face thing happens, but it's the shoe thing that's confusing, right? So let me explain to you what's going on there. The simplest way for me to explain this is that the the exchange of a shoe, if I was to, to give some man a shoe, it's, it's me saying the, the land on which my foot was entitled to trod is now yours, right? The land that was entitled for me to own is now yours. I give it to you. I know it's weird. That's just the way it was back then. Here's the bigger thing. I know some of you are sitting here probably saying, why are we spending so much time on this shoe thing? Like, what are we doing? I'm so glad you asked. Here's why. It's because we're going to see that this shoe thing comes up in just a minute in the Ruth and Boaz story. And I wanted you to have the backdrop to kind of understand what's going on here. So Boaz meets this potential redeemer who is a closer relative at the gate. Boaz asks him to sit down and chat. The man agrees. So let's go back to Ruth chapter 4. Pick up in verse 2. It says... And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So what's, what's Boaz doing? Now he's bringing witnesses into this discussion he's about to have. Remember, Boaz has an agenda. He wants to talk with this redeemer. And he ultimately, Boaz wants to find a figure out a way where that redeeming man passes on um, being the, the redeemer in the situation. Because Boaz wants to marry Ruth. And so he doesn't want to do some shady backdoor deal with like nobody around. He brings the the witnesses forward. They're going to observe the discussion. Verse three, we continue on. It says, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So it says that Naomi is selling this parcel of land that belonged to her dead husband, Elimelech, right? So let me tell you how this whole land situation worked in the people of Israel. It's a lot more complicated than I have time to explain, but I'm going to try to summarize it the best I can. So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are kind of the the fathers of the people of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. Each of those sons kind of became one of the tribal leaders of Israel. And each one of those sons got a land allotment for them and and their children and their children's children. So all through Jewish history, those those tribes were responsible for taking care of their land. So they'd parcel it out and they would, you know, make sure different families within that tribe took care of certain sections of land. Well, if a family in a particular tribe became poor and destitute and they just could not care for their land, they couldn't afford to do it anymore, then they could sell their land and their belongings and all that comes with it. They could sell it to someone called a redeemer. And that redeemer could buy the land from them, use that land to make a profit, produce goods, whatever it may be. Until the destitute family could buy it back. But if they could never buy it back, the destitute family might just be like, hey, when you buy the land, you're buying us. We are indenturing, or we're, we're kind of becoming indentured servants to you. So the Redeemer would own and, and work the land and all of its belongings, either until the poor family could buy it back, or until something came around called the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years among the people of Israel, they would celebrate the year of Jubilee where all their debts were forgiven, all the indentured slaves were given their freedom, and all the land was given back to the original families that it belonged to. So uh, until the year of Jubilee came around, this redeemer that Boaz is talking to, he could use the land for profit. So Boaz gives this closer relative the opportunity to be the redeemer of all of Naomi's property, and the man agrees. And then Boaz adds this little caveat. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. All right, so that's all the lever at marriage stuff that we talked about a minute ago. And then the Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the man hears that if he does this deal, he doesn't just get the land, he gets the girl. And he's got to, you know, give this girl a child. So that that child would become an heir to the inheritance of Elimelech. And suddenly he changes the response after that saying, nope, can't do it. It will impair my own inheritance. So that can be a little bit confusing to understand So here's likely what was going on. It's very likely that this man, this redeemer, had a family of his own. He had sons of his own. It's uh, likely that those boys' inheritance and all the plans for it had already been set. So if he used his money to buy Naomi's land, right, that would be money that he had already planned to pass on to his kids. You know, if he used that money and bought the land, sure, he could use the land to make crops and, and make more money for himself, But he would also have to care for Naomi herself and everyone else that kind of came with the deal. He would have to provide for Naomi and Ruth along the way. That would be pretty expensive. So he had to weigh all these things and say, is there really a profit for me in the end? Plus, if he married Ruth, he had to have a son with her and that son would become Naomi's heir, which means that son would inherit all the land that this man just redeemed, land he paid for out of his pocket, And that would have been an incredibly generous thing for this Redeemer man to to consider. And oftentimes they did do it in uh, Jewish culture. It was very generous of them. But it also meant that all the money that he spent on Naomi's land would go to Naomi's heir, not his own existing children. So it's likely that he passed on this deal because his son with Ruth wouldn't really be his son. Uh, It wouldn't be his heir. And he isn't willing to risk the inheritance that he's already got established for his existing kids. So this was probably a very shameful decision um, in and among the Jewish culture. But it was his right to refuse. And that's what he chose to do. So now we're going to see how the whole shoe thing ties into this man who says, Nope, I don't want to practice lever at marriage. Here it comes. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So again, an interesting way to do business, right? Exchange the shoe, right? This man's, you know, really when he he gives his shoe to Boaz, all the witnesses observe it, right? And they're saying, we attest to this. This is how the deal went down. This man forfeited his right to the land he could have had. And the land and all of its uh, accompanying items go to Boaz. On to verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I, have brought, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So again, there's people at the gate. The elders are there. They're witnessing the agreement. They, they witnessed Boaz agree to take Ruth to be his wife. And he states publicly, I intend to try to have children with her. And part of the blessing of doing so is that there will be this eventual heir that will eventually receive all the land and the property that once belonged to Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. This heir will receive all of that. So verse 11 says this, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, right? That's Ruth. May the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Right? So who who were Rachel and Leah? They were the wives of Jacob, who from Jacob, Rachel and Leah had these children who all essentially, you know, became the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the people that ended up in their families from that line on. So the people are saying, may the Lord build up your house, the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. So the people are basically praying and asking God to bless Ruth and Boaz with many children, that they will perpetuate the generations of people of the people of God in their region. And they state, here's the thing, they state that their hope is for Boaz's line to be like the line of a man named Perez. Now, what's up with Perez? Why would he be mentioned here? Again, lots of Jewish history that ties into all this. But we get the answer from Genesis chapter 38. Again, I'm not going to put it on the screen I'm not going to really just read it verse for verse here, but I just want to summarize Perez and his role from Genesis chapter 38. Perez is the son of a man named Judah. Perez's mother is named Tamar. Perez was born to Judah and Tamar in, how shall we say, a very unique way. If you know the story, you can read it on your own. Tamar was a widow without any offspring to carry on her dead husband's name. She needed a family redeemer to make a child with her, uh, practicing lever at marriage. The closest relative was a man named Onan, and he essentially refused to do that. The reason was because he, here's why in Genesis 38, it's because he knew that any baby he made with Tamar would not be considered his own heir. Okay, so he, Onan is very much like the the man that Boaz was talking to at the city gates. He was a man who didn't want to be Ruth's redeemer because the child that came wouldn't um, be his own and he wouldn't be his heir. So Tamar, you know, used this unique strategy to get together with Judah and they ended up having a baby together and that baby is named Perez. And here's the thing, Perez ended up being the ancestor of the very people who lived in Bethlehem where the story of Ruth and Boaz is taking place. So in our story, these people of Bethlehem want Boaz to have this blessed line of offspring from Ruth, just like Judah had with Tamar, a great family line that comes as a result of one man refusing Leveret marriage and another man accepting it. So that's why these names are thrown in. Told you we'd have a little detailed Bible stuff here. On to verse 13. Verse 13 says this, So Boaz took Ruth, And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Let me just take a little minute for a, a side note here. It says in this text that the Lord gave her conception. Neither a man nor a woman ultimately conceive the life of a baby. The Lord does. And the life that the Lord makes should not be a life that we take. This is why we stand for the preborn. This is why we fight against abortion and the various things that are associated with it in our culture. And I just wanted to give you a heads up that we're finishing up Ruth today, but next Sunday I'm going to begin a new sermon series called Mercy. It's going to be kind of the final push, the final emphasis in our Make Him Known initiative that we have in our church I'm calling it mercy because the whole series is going to be calling us as the people of God to show mercy, compassionate care for the most vulnerable uh, people in our world. And next Sunday, the vulnerable people that I'm going to be talking about is the pre-born. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that that's going to be our topic next Sunday. First of all, because I know a lot of you bring your kids in here and you may want to be discerning given that subject matter for your kids and how they hear that sermon. Some of you... Uh, may have your own personal background and your own life tied into the issue of abortion, and um, that can be very sensitive, sometimes very difficult for people. So I just want to let you know that that's coming. You can use your discernment next Sunday about your participation in the service. I hope you'll come. Well, it says that the Lord gave Ruth conception, and she bore a son, verse 14. Verse 14 says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here's what's really interesting to me about this series of verses I just read. The women say to Naomi, the Lord has not left you without a redeemer. And then they say, your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. So here's why that's interesting to me. Because in the story, so often we read, we're like, okay, there's one redeemer. His name is Boaz. He redeemed Ruth. Well, what do we see here now? Men, uh, there's this idea of redemption and a redeemer that the Lord has also given to Naomi, right? Boaz has redeemed Ruth, but this child, Obed, is the redeemer for Naomi. Now, how is he redeeming her? What, what is that all about? And it's, in some ways, it's, it's so obvious, right? In the obvious sense, this child has totally redeemed and reversed uh, Naomi's life. Like, she came into the story feeling empty, empty childless. Now she ends the story with her heart full, holding a grandchild. She came back to Bethlehem being bitter and angry at God. Now she's rejoicing in the Lord with her friends, right? She previously was fearful about how she'd be cared for in her old age. Now she has this young man who's going to grow up and be able to care for her as she gets old and he gets older, right? She was once feeling empty because she didn't have a family line to carry on. Now she has this son by Boaz and Ruth who's going to be a family heir, right? So the scripture calls Obed a redeemer because God used him to change Naomi's life. But in a whole nother sense, This child was not just part of redeeming Naomi's life. This child was going to be part of redeeming all of the people of God's lives. Now, let's see how that plays out. Because the book of Ruth ends in an interesting way. It ends with a genealogy. Like, what's going on with this, right? Look at verse 18. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So interestingly, right, the the narrator ends with this blurb about ancestry, and it starts with Perez and it ends with David. So what's going on with that? I want to do my best to succinctly summarize this. Remember, we talked about Perez earlier. He was the son of a man named Judah. Judah, like I said, was the son of a man named Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, far, the forefathers of the people of Israel. And Jacob, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is about to die, and he goes out to his sons, and he starts to bless his children before he dies, and he, Jacob looks at his son Judah, and here's what he says. The scepter shall not depart from from Judah. In other words, it is from Judah's lineage that the kings will come. The line of Judah was to be a blessed line from which great leaders, the saviors, the kings of Israel would come. Well, From Judah's line came Perez. From Perez's line came Boaz. From Boaz's line eventually came King David. And from King David's line eventually came who? King Jesus. So these genealogies are here to make a point. And the point is that, you know, the stories of the redeemers like Boaz and Obed, they're all part of the line of kings which is leading up to the line of the ultimate Redeemer, King, King Jesus. I hope you see this, these genealogy they're not just added in here like meaningless. There's a purpose for showing all this. God's sovereign hand at work in all of it, including the ways people's birth stories came about in some kind of weird manners, right? God's been working through it all. So as we wrap up our book of Ruth today, as we conclude, What are our big takeaways from the book of Ruth? I'm going to give you four of them today. We've covered these in the previous weeks. I just want to reiterate them today. But as I reiterate these takeaways, these big ideas from the book of Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I told you we were going to end with a time of reflection and response and consideration, decision. As I remind you of these big takeaways from the book of Ruth, I want you to be thinking about today what one, or maybe more than one, You know, is the Lord really like having you, you know, here um, because he wants to speak it into your life? Like, which one is really the Lord speaking to your heart? Which of these four takeaways? How might the Lord want to speak to you today? Listen, as I just kind of remind you of these. Here was the first takeaway from chapter one. It was this. When you're tempted to be bitter at God, remember he's doing something better than you can imagine. When you're tempted to be bitter at God, remember he's doing something better than you can imagine. Listen, I know that some of you probably have come to church, heard these sermons through Ruth for the past four weeks, and bitterness with God is something that you're kind of dealing with on the inside. Something didn't go the way you expected in life. Bitterness usually happens because there's been a wound or a pain. We've experienced something we, we did not see coming a loss, a broken relationship, whatever it might be, you've got this pain and and you're you're wrestling with the idea of being bitter at God. If that's you today, let me just pastorally say this to you. You are not alone. (laughs) So many believers go through seasons in their life where bitterness towards God can be a real thing. I mean, Naomi was one of the people of God. She knew God. He was, she was one of God's people, yet she, we even saw, she had this season of, of bitterness toward God. If that's you, then here's your takeaway from the book of Ruth. You may not be able to see it now, but God is doing something better than you can imagine in your life right now. Maybe that's your takeaway as we wrap up the book of Ruth. Ruth. Maybe that's not yours. Let me give you a, a second takeaway to consider. The second one is this: what seems like your happenstance is really God's providence. What seems like your happenstance is really God's providence. Right? Some of you are coming into the room through this series, or coming in here today, and you're just looking at the situations in your life, the circumstance in your life, and and let me be honest, some of you are probably looking at your life, and when I say God's providence, like your heart like bubbles up with joy, you could raise your hands in praise because you have gone through some things in your life that you didn't know what God was doing before, but now enough time has passed and you can look back and you can say God was at work in it all. And so for some of you, this idea of God's providence is something like you're seeing it and you are rejoicing in it. Others of you are like, I want to believe in it. I need to believe in it, but it's hard. Because there are some of you who are really struggling to see God's hand in your circumstances today. Let me say it this way. Some of you are not living your plan A in your life. You're living your plan B, C, D, Z, right? Some of you, it's like, this thing has gone way off track from what I thought it was gonna be. And listen, here's what I want you to know. What you think is your plan B, C, D, or Z it's been God's plan all along. There's no mistakes. God's not sitting in heaven, reacting like everything. Oh, we're on to plan, you know, BCD now. God's not making new plans based off our decisions. Like, he knows the end from the beginning. He's working it all out. So here's what that means. Even if your circumstances right now seem painful and difficult, what I can promise you is that God has a good purpose in the suffering and pain that he's working in your life. In other words, your hardship is not meaningless. It's not without a purpose. You may not be able to see it right now. But while you're in the waiting, God is working. And he's working out his good purposes now. So maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to remember and believe, and choose to believe that your happenstance is really God's providence. That's your takeaway. Maybe this is your takeaway. Remember this point, when you're restless for the rest of relationships, you need to find your true rest in a relationship with God. Maybe that's your big takeaway today, right? This is, this idea of relationships, especially relationships of people who are longing to get married, right? That the book of Ruth is one of only a very few sections of scripture that really address that significantly. And so some of you, like this may have really kind of touched your heart because you're a teenager or you're a college student. You hope to be married one day. Maybe you've gone through a divorce or you've lost your husband or your wife and you're wondering if you'll ever be remarried someday. Or maybe you've just been single for a long time. You don't know if, you know, the Lord's going to bring you a spouse or not. And listen, I just want to say this pastorally. Like if that's you, I get it that some of what we've shared in this series may be, may be very hard or very uncomfortable for you. But what I want you to see is this. Ruth and Boaz both came to a point in the story where the Lord knew their heart's desire to be married. They had shared their heart's desire with each other to be married. But there were other things at place Uh, at stake and other things going on, so they had to just release the whole situation into God's hands and rest in him. So some of you today, you you may need to, to say to the Lord today, maybe your big takeaway is this, God, you know my heart. You know how I long to be married, but today I choose to believe that you are enough. I trust you. Maybe that's your takeaway today. And I want to close by addressing one last takeaway that may hit a certain group of people in here today. Maybe you need to hear this. Just as Ruth was redeemed through Boaz, you can be redeemed through Jesus. Your life can be redeemed through Jesus. You know, some of you are going to see Ruth's story, and you're going to see your story aligning with Ruth's story, right? She was, uh, a, she had a background where she came from a sinful place, right? Like Moab was not a good place. Incest, idolatry, uh, child sacrifice, all sorts of terrible stuff in Moab, right? So she came from a bad background. Some of you are here in this church service today, and you know what? You're coming from a bad background. You are coming from a background that's full of sin. So you connect with Ruth. Ruth was also an outsider, a foreigner initially among the people of God. And so maybe you're here today and you're kind of like, you know what, if I'm honest, I feel like a little bit of an outsider among the people of God. I, I don't know if I really belong in church. I don't know if I really belong among the Christian community. Some of you, like Ruth, you you, you see her struggles. She lost her son. She lost her her husband. She didn't know where she was going to live. She was displaced. She didn't know how she was going to be provided for. And so some of you identify with that because you're going through some struggles. You've had loss. You're you're nervous about your provision, your protection. But it just so happened that God showed up in Ruth's life. And some of you are here today and you're like, I need God to show up in my life. See, what we learned from Ruth is that God takes people with a sinful past, a desperate present and a hopeless future, and he totally redeems them for his glory. He gives them a new story. So some of you are like, you're looking at Ruth, and here's the thing. I want you to look at Ruth, and I want you to see yourself. If your past is sinful, if your present is desperate, if your future seems hopeless, God can redeem your life for his glory, and he can give you a new story. So look at Ruth and and see yourself. But here's the other thing. When you see Boaz in this story, look at Boaz and see a picture of Jesus. Because I want you to think about Boaz, right? Boaz was from Bethlehem. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Boaz was a notably righteous man. Jesus was a perfectly righteous man. Boaz took a, took a bride who had come in out of, us of a sinful place in her background. Jesus takes his bride, the church, every one of us, out of our sinful backgrounds. He, he welcomes us into himself. And Boaz did all the redeeming work for Ruth. He did every bit of the work to make her his own. And Jesus did all the work to make you his own. He hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. There's no more work to be done. You can't save yourself by religious deeds, going to church, being a good person, and in the end, just hoping your good deeds outweigh your bad. Jesus accomplished every good deed for you. So you are not saved by your works. You are saved by trusting in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Trust in him. And he will redeem you. Think about the role of a redeemer in our text. The role of the redeemer in our text. The redeemer redeemer had to be related to the redeemed. He had to be able to do the redeeming and he had to be willing to do the redeeming, right? Boaz had to be related to Ruth. Boaz had to be able and have the means to redeem Ruth. He had to be willing to redeem Ruth. And let me tell you something, praise the Lord. Jesus uh, has made himself, right? He was, he's become related to us because he left heaven and he took on humanity and he became one of us. Jesus isn't just a relative of ours. Jesus is what? Jesus is able to do the redeeming. He died on the cross, but three days later, he rose again from the grave, overcoming sin and death. He is able to redeem you from your life of sin. And Jesus isn't just a relative. He's not just able. Jesus is willing to save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the scripture says, shall be saved. Jesus went to the cross and he willingly laid down his life for you so that you can be redeemed. So yes, look at Ruth and see yourself, but look to Boaz and see Jesus. And then like Ruth, place yourself humbly at the feet of Jesus saying, redeem me. Will you redeem me? And Jesus, our Redeemer, who paid the price for you at the cross and rose from the grave three days later, he will say to you what Boaz said to Ruth, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lord, I want to stop right now and I just want to pray that you would do your redeeming work in the hearts of people today. Lord, I I want to thank you that you are my redeemer. Thank you that there are hundreds of people in this room today. You are our redeemer. We praise you as our redeemer. And I pray, Lord, that as our redeemer, you would let us worship you and be drawn to you and that you might redeem someone's life today.